Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. This week's message comes from Pastor John McDougall, and we hope it encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. And thank you, worship team, and thanks, church family, for gathering today. As Tyson was praying, was reminded just uh, the gift of community and being together and just the encouragement as, as we sing to hear your voice and to hear the voice of the person next to next to us and know we're not alone and it's good for the soul, isn't it? And um, and to know the Lord is with us in these moments. And this is, I don't know how you feel throughout the week, but I, you get, I get to a point in the week and some weeks it's greater than others that I just can't wait to come and just celebrate our great God together. And just something about it, it's almost a climax of, of the whole week. And so um, love these moments, thankful for them. And if you're just joining us, and a reminder to all of us, we are on a dead sprint as a church family this year. And it's, um, it's not, we're not at like a, uh, uh, pick your race, marathon pace, where it's like a, you know, seven-minute mile pace. We, this is 100-yard dash that, that we're going after this. And where are we sprinting? What's our goal? We are chasing humility. We're asking God, would you create in us a, a humble heart, the heart of Christ, and so we're doing something kind of counterintuitive. When God provides a humbling moment in our lives, we're embracing it. <laughs> and it's, it's our reflexes to do just the opposite. But we're saying, okay, when, when there, a humbling moment comes, man, I'm going to embrace that, make the most of it grow. It may be painful to our pride, but it's good for the soul. So with that, we've been sharing some humility moments. When one pops up, feel free to share that in your small group or whatever. And I'll, I've been sharing a few of those. Today, I'll start with one that really intros our text. And I, I wonder, as I share this, did, did you have the same moment? Is this a universal moment for humans? But it happened to me in fourth grade. I was standing in line with all the other kids. And uh, I still remember the shirt I was wearing. It was a brown striped, like, 70s golf shirt. I remember the carpet. It was blue. It was, like, deep sky blue. And what made the moment memorable was the smell something smelled bad. And so I concluded quickly, it must be the guy in front of me or the guy behind me, so I need to create distance. Create some distance, and to my shock, when I was away from these guys, the smell remained. And then the truth hit me like a truck. It changed my life that day. And it was this. <laughs> it's me. I stink. <laughs> it was... Uh, just a horrible moment of self-awareness, but then what a relief to be able to, the minute I got home, make a beeline for dad's bathroom, open the, the uh, cupboard there and grab his old spice deodorant and aftershave and go to work on taking care of my issue. Those are painful moments, self-awareness, when we realize it's not physically, it's not the guy in front of me or the guy behind me, it's me, but how much greater in the in the spiritual realm, you know, when we realize, you know what, it's, it's not the person around me necessarily that has the issue, I have an issue. And God, graciously through his word, gently but also firmly, brings us to those moments, and there are certain texts that are especially uh, 
instructive, painful, if you will. I'll just give you a heads up. The text we're in today, it feels a bit like a surgeon's scalpel. It, it will cut. And so when we get cut, our tendency is to jump or to flinch or to hop off the operating table. So I just encourage you, when, when you, if you feel the cut of God's word, know he cares, know he loves you, and this is wound that will heal. This is, these are good wounds, but, uh, but they hurt nonetheless as they show us ourselves. And so that's where we'll, we'll be today, James chapter 4. And what we'll do, we'll read through the whole text just to help us kind of soak in it, and then we'll unpack it. And what we'll discover are four uh, really parts to this and some very clear action steps that flow out of it. But James, again, is writing to churches, to people who are in conflict right now, and, and remember the context that he's finishing up in this text, a thought he started in chapter 3, where the people are um, in conflict with one another. And he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you do not get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you, did, you do not ask God. But when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, the selfish motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And so the first part that that emerges as we read this text could be called the confrontation. This is where James is getting in their faces, in our faces, um, and, and he's saying, in essence, this, you're losing the fight within, the battle that's warring within. We see this in verses one to three. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, it's a fight that's happening within them. Don't, you, don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. So commentators are split on this. Does this mean, were they literally killing each other in the church? And they, most said, no, this is probably figurative. And, and speaking of when Jesus said, if you're even angry in your heart, you've already, in essence, committed the sin of murder. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, that we know this could have been in that what was the, the first murder was, was what in the Bible? Genesis it was Cain, Abel, brother on brother, and it was a worship moment. Could have been. But then he says, you covet you, and you do not get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. And to covet is to passionately desire something that someone else has. It's, it's the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. And he lists all these things. You know, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's stuff, your, and goes down through the list. When covet, when, when this desire for another person's stuff moves from some, the mind to passionate desire and then into action, it can lead us to break the previous nine commandments. It's, a, a, it's at the heart of it all. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive. And here we see the, the five ways that God answers prayer. The first two are right here. 
The first one, when we pray, God, the first answer is, yes, here, here's what you're asking for. I thought you'd never ask. But then what's the way God answers prayer? No, I love you too much. <laughs> when we're asking out of a selfish motive or a wrong motive, and that's what he, he's pointing to. He says, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Are pleasures wrong? No. But when pleasures become the main thing, or the God of our lives, that's when, when they, uh, they're a problem. So this is the confrontation. James is saying, hey, you're, you're losing the battle within. And I'm picturing you moms that have kids that are young, and when you have to go through that referee moment where kids are mad at each other, you pull everybody together and you say, what's really going on here? Why are we fighting? Because he did this or she did that. And, uh, uh, uh. But what's the real issue? What's at the heart of the issue? And as we shepherd a child's heart, it's coming back to that reality that we're being selfish. We, we want what we want, and that other person got in the way of it, and therefore we, we go to war. We destroy them. We, we um, wipe them out if they're in the, the path of what we want. And that's what James is saying here. When we lose the battle within, that's what creates the conflicts and the, uh, the feuds without. So what's the battle? If you boiled it down, what's the battle within? He uses the word desires here. It's that... Um, it's an unchecked desire, my desire where I want what I want apart from what, what God has said. So in essence, it's losing the battle of who's in charge in my life. Am I the king of my life or is God the king? Am I living a self-willed life, my will be done, or am I living the way God calls us to, your will be done, desiring his will? When we lose the battle within, the conflict erupts. So you think about your own life and where there's conflict. Often you can trace it back to to selfish desire running us or owning us. But then he moves to the second part. So he moves from confrontation to explanation. Why does this matter? Why is this so important? And and why the strong rhetoric here, James? This is, in this section, he explains why our selfish ambition is so destructive and, and hurtful. And we see it in verse 4 and 5. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world, and when he says world, the, it's talking about the, the world system apart from God. It's, um, uh, he, he says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has called to, caused to dwell in us? That idea of God jealously longing for the Spirit could be the Holy Spirit, could be our natural spirit, that God created us to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him. And when we choose other lovers, seek affection other places, He's a jealous lover, and rightly so. But, but what's His point here as He says this? You start with the first phrase, you adulterous people, and man, that hits. It literally, in the Greek, it's you adulteresses. say, well, does, were these people committing adultery? The, this is that most scholars feel this is meant to be taken uh, figuratively versus literally. Immediately, the Jewish mind would go back to how God describes his people through the prophets when they would be unfaithful to him, when they would chase other gods, other idols, ignore his will. He spoke to them. He said, I, I, um, what you've done is adultery, and he spoke as a broken-hearted lover, communicating the reality that when we sin against him, when we pursue selfish ambition, when we become God of our own life, and 
seek satisfaction, seek pleasure, seek whatever we want apart from him, it's a betrayal against love. Our sin is every time, and it hurts him. It's helpful to remember who we are as his people. When we come to faith in Christ, we enter a new covenant. We are a new covenant community. And say covenant's not a word we use a lot except for marriage. You enter a marriage covenant, you devote yourselves to one another for life. A covenant is simply a binding promise. And it, we know when Jesus, remember when he took communion, he said, with, with this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The beauty of being new covenant people, it's the covenant of grace is, God has promised to give us everything, and we don't deserve it. It's grace. So we get the forgiveness of our sin. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ and trust Him, we, we enter into this covenant relationship, a sacred relationship where we are His, He is ours, and He forgives all of our sin, past, present, future. He invites us into this um, a new family where he, he says, okay, before we had to come to Him through a priest, under the old covenant, but now in the new covenant, he says, there's no priest. You can run boldly into my presence and call me dad. Call me Abba, father. Anything you need, I'll give it to you, or or I will provide what you need. It's the um, Hebrews chapter four. We find grace, all the grace we need for each moment of our lives. As as new covenant people, we are um, part of his kingdom, a new kingdom that Jesus has established. It's an eternal kingdom. Right now, it's invisible. Right now, you have the, the clash of kingdoms, the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God. We live here in the kingdom of darkness, but as a church, we're an outpost of his kingdom where we have a new leader. It's Jesus. We have a new law. It's his love, and we have a new capacity to experience his kingdom in real time by faith. So even though it's a mess down here, I can have peace. I can have joy. I can have hope. I can have purpose. All this because we're a new covenant people, and what drives the new covenant? It's this passionate love of our God for us. So, when we sneak out and slip away and go back into our old life or into the world or follow the devil, our own desires or the world's system and look to get our pleasure, our satisfaction from all that, it's like adultery, like cheating on a spouse, but worse in God's eyes. It hurts him, it hurts us, and it ruptures this relationship. That's what James is getting at. And what he's saying is, guys, how you're living right now, it's not matching your identity. You're a new covenant people. You've got everything in Christ, and yet you're fighting each other and and selfish ambition, trying to be God of your own life and climbing these molehills that are really not worth even climbing. And so uh, his calling is, um, this, is, this cannot be, this is inconsistency. You can't be a friend of the world and still be a friend of God at the same time. John says it so well over in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, where he parses out the world. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love, of the, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh. So this would be the pleasures of the flesh that we, we get outside of, of um, how God has called us to, to enjoy them. The lust of the eyes. This would be the um, desire for possessions, the materialism, and, and then the, the pride of life. This would be the pursuit of position and status and how other people see us. 
All these things, they come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. And so what's James' point here? What's he explaining? And it's our sin is a betrayal of love. But now we get to the part that's just so beautiful. This is the worship moment in the text. We could just stop here, kneel, and, and this is where we see the glory of our God. This is awesome. We betray our God. But how does he respond? Verse 6. But he gives us more grace. And guys, I, I know I've been soaking in this all week, but this is the part that just puts joy in our hearts, love in our hearts for our God. But the more we hurt him, the more he gives us grace to cover our sin. This is our God. This is not how we treat each other. This is his glory, but this is him. James is saying, guys, we betray him at a, a heart level, a hurt level, and yet he gives us more grace. He pours his grace out on us. And I love the picture of, uh, this guy painted a picture of the Niagara Falls, big waterfall. And he went to auction it, but he said, I'm not going to name it. I want the people buying it to name it. So the group that was going to buy this painting, they deliberated for a moment. And then they came up with this phrase. They named the picture this, more to come. And the beauty of that is that's God's grace, isn't it? (laughs) Pouring into our lives. Even this last week, you think about how his grace just poured, poured, poured. Do we deserve it? No. But but it pours into our lives. His saving grace. Those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And even today, if you haven't done that, that you can receive total forgiveness of sin through what Jesus did for us on the cross. Grace to cover sin today, tomorrow, into the future. But then we have his sanctifying grace, you know, where even in our sin, he, he, he uh, shows us the truth and he calls us back to what is right. And then he purifies us through that and, and helps us grow to become more like Christ. Then you have his empowering grace to, to serve. And he calls you to go serve and you think, how can I do that? And you step out in faith and boom, it's his power through his spirit that, that helps us serve and helps us be his presence to where he's placed us that way. Those good works that he created us to do. We get to go do those and we wake up each new morning with a purpose that's bigger than this dismal world. It's eternal. It's his grace that helps us do this. We have his sustaining grace that gets us through the trials of life. The dark moments, those moments that we don't see a way out. The mountain is too high to climb and yet we kneel before him and, and what's he do? We he, uh, Isaiah 40 happens again, wings like eagles. 24-hour segments where we get this um, sustaining grace in our trials. We get the dying grace, that moment we come to our deathbed, and we run out of breath, and we can't keep ourselves alive. He is there in a way that, and I've watched it. For God's people, it's close. And he, you will have all the grace you need for that last moment when you fall asleep in Christ. And when you get to the other side, by faith we know um, there will be glorifying grace. He will give us bodies that are no longer um, weak, strong, bodies that are no longer mortal, immortal, bodies that are no longer um, marked by the curse, but free from the curse. This is His grace today, tomorrow, into eternity. Water falling into our life. Can you feel the, don't you just want to worship? Your future is beautiful if you are in Christ, but there is only one thing in the universe that can stop the flow of his grace. And do you know what it is? 
It's in this text. It's pride. It's pride. Pride stops the waterfall of God's grace because it says it's the enthronement of self and the dethronement of God, and God must oppose that. And when we say, it's my life, it's my will, I know best, when we live selfish ambition, um, scrambling to be better than those around us, and, and all the stuff that comes out of that, we stop the waterfall of God's grace in our lives because we hurt Him, we hurt ourselves. And it's a... Uh, it, you say, why are we chasing humility this year? And why does James get so wound up on this? Why the rhetoric, James? Why the passion? This is huge. His grace flows to who? To the humble. That does not flow to the proud. And that leads us to the, the third part of this text, which is the response. If God's grace flows to the humble, but not the proud, what is our fitting response? And it is simply to humble ourselves before him. And we see this in verses 7 and following where he says, submit yourselves therefore, because this is true, God pours out his grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail, change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And so here God uh, calls us to, to humility, but what's helpful about this passage is he gives us four action steps that really outline. You say, well, what's it look like to pursue humility? He, he tells us right here, first thing is action step one, and I've put, we'll put them in four words that hopefully we can carry with us this week. So I encourage you to jot these down or um, remember it's, it's a helpful paradigm that how we humble ourselves before the Lord. The first one is submit there in verse seven where he says, submit yourselves then to God. And this is where we simply resurrender our lives to him. Interesting, the first breath of the Lord's prayer was what? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That, that's what this is. It's simply praying, Lord, what I want today is not my will. I want your will. And my passion today is to, to see you glorified and see the people around me lifted up. Today, what I want is not my name lifted up. I'm chasing humility. I want to run with everything I've got to that place of utter nothingness. Down, down, down to where I have forgotten about myself because all I can see is you and this calling to love the people around me the way you have loved me. That's what I want today. Lord, I want that. I, I submit to that. Jesus, I'm following you to that. The one who had everything and was everything became nothing so that he might give us everything. And then he says, follow me. That's the path I want to go today. Not my honor, your honor, and the honor of the people around me. Second step, he says, is resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is a call to put up a fight. And I fear that in our Christian life, sometimes we forget it's a fight and we give way to the devil by our pa passivity rather than saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I I'm not going to get caught up in these chasing the things of this world, the stuff, the status, the, the significance and what others think and all these little things that selfish ambition has everybody else chasing. And he tempts us with, hey, money, sex, power, status. Like, no, I'm going to stand. 
I'm not going to go that way. I'm not going to follow you with those and your weak lies that this stuff can satisfy because I have him. He's my king. He's my father. I have everything I need in him. I serve another kingdom, not this kingdom. You can take all that stuff. I don't want it because I have him. He is enough. Sell him out for 30 pieces of silver so that I can look good. I don't want that. And what a hope-giving picture here when we stand, and we don't stand in our own power, but in the power of of the Lord, Ephesians 6, and we armor up. What's God tell us the devil does right here? He flees from us. The backside of the devil is a beautiful thought. When we stand, the devil flees. And I today, I man, I if, if you've been under attack and thinking, I don't know that I can live the life of humility and follow Jesus into this life of humble love, you can by the power of God, and, but it means standing. It means putting up a defense. And, uh, and then the third action step, and this is a beautiful promise, is verse uh, 8. He says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Could there be a greater promise in all the world than this verse? <laughs> when you take your stand against the devil, you turn, and then you begin to walk towards the Lord. What's God promise right here? God walks towards you. Isn't that awesome? I, I know my first response was it's kind of scary at first. It's, it's sobering to think I can be like God. When I step towards him, he's coming towards me. We're going to be together. And he's awesome. And he's infinitely above us. But, but then it, it's exhilarating, isn't it? Worship-inducing that when I make the move towards God, he's moving towards me. What picture comes to your mind through Scripture? as this is lived out. It's when Jesus opens our eyes to the heart of the Father through the prodigal son, the story in Luke 15. And it says, when the son turned and went home, it says, the father saw him when he was a long way off. His heart was filled with compassion. And what does Jesus say the father does? Wait for him. Walk towards him. What's the word? He runs to the one he loves beautiful picture and today if you or if you felt if you came in here feeling distant from God it's not him who moved right it's us and our tendency to try to make life work apart from him but when we resist and submit and then we come near him he's going to be coming near you and his invitation is come home come home come home and then the fourth step is to confess when we turn to him, our thought is, how can I be with him? I'm a mess in this. And, and this is where James helps us. He walks us through the, really, and we feel the emotion of confession here. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The double-minded is the idea of wanting two things, a mind that's divided. God's will, my will. And his purity of heart is to want one thing. And he's like, I'm just purify your hearts. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And this is the emotional response. When we confess, we see our sin as God sees it. And it hits us at an emotional level. This hurts our God. It, it should grieve us. Um, similar, similarly to if we were to um, commit adultery and how that would hurt our spouse. 
we read this, um, our joy, turn your joy to gloom and say, well, I thought a couple weeks ago we talked about we're to be rejoicing always. So how does that fit? And it's where it fits is this is um, not to be the, the main mode of our lives, but rather as we go into seasons of confession, as we confess our sin to him, there is an appropriate grieving process, but it leads us to the joy of our salvation. The, uh, here God is calling us through his word to a passionate pursuit of holiness out of a love and devotion to him. And this brings us to the last part, the fourth part of this text, which is really the summit. And this is the good news. This is the gospel part of this. And um, five words that wrap up this entire section there in verse 10. First part, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, what he just described. And what does God do? It says, and he will lift you up. Now, when God lifts you up, What's that look like? What, what would you, how would you, do, what's that mean? That's one of those vague things that is kind of out there. So how would you, what does it mean to be lifted up by God? Humble yourself before him, he will lift you up. I know I often, just quick read, would interpret that based on my own selfish ambition. If I humble myself in this situation, this conflict situation where somebody's being an idiot to me, he is going to, let me just pound these guys down and be the number one. And what's wrong with that interpretation? I'm seeing through the lens of the kingdom of this earth and pride. What does it mean he will lift you up? And, and you soak in this. Run down that rabbit trail and words can't describe it. But, but when he lifts you up, you think about your salvation, picked us up out of the, the grave. We could not pick ourselves up the grave of our depravity, the grave of our sin, death, the sting of death, and all of that. And he lifts us up to eternal life forever with him. But take it in the context of our bondage and our depravity and our tendency to chase our, these evil desires. He, he lifts us up to a place where we're free from that. that as we were singing, the chains start to drop and we become more and more like Christ. Think about how he lifts us up in his grace through our trials and through our troubles and through our hurts and he brings that healing he lifts us up when we're feeling hurt by the people around us to the, his dinner table he says my child i'm your father and i've got you my love's enough he lifts us up through our struggles through our pain provides the grace that we need but ultimately when he lifts us up what's the what's the greatest thing he lifts us into it's him we have him he lifts us up into this love relationship and all this forever. So, what's the aim of our pride? When we're being fueled by pride, what, what's the aim? Lift me up. I, I want to get lifted up. I want to lift up my name. And that's the great insanity. What causes fights and conflicts among us? We're living to lift ourselves up. But what's God's calling? What's the way of his kingdom? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and what will he do? He will do what we're all trying to do, but he will do it far greater than we could ever do it. He will lift us up. Why is James bringing this with such passion? It's because selfish ambition, pride, it hurts the one who loves us. It's a, a sin against love. We hurt him um, rather than bring him glory 
We hurt the people around us as we live to lift ourselves up, and we miss what we were created to do, our, our life calling. But if we get it right, and I was thinking today, what, what, wouldn't it be awesome if every one of us just said, I will take this verse 10, and I'm going to chase it this week by, with God's help. If we will humble ourselves before the Lord and experience his lifting, what's going to happen? And we will live in such a way that we will bring glory to God, good to the people around us, and taste the joy of this is why I'm here. Rather than pursuing my name um, being lifted up to uh, pursue this place of utter nothingness before God, um, lost in his glory, lost in who he is, his love and his sufficiency, and such that we're living for his glory and the good of those around us. And so I know as I was reading this text, I felt that need to just spend some time um, humbling myself before the Lord, submitting, uh, resisting, drawing near, and then confessing. And so I wanted to give that opportunity for, uh, for us today, for you today. And so I'll read a, a scripture that really puts this truth to picture, and then Wes will come and, and walk us through a song. It will give us a chance to, to just pray and spend some time humbling ourselves before the Lord. This uh, story comes from Jesus in Luke chapter 15. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he sent off, sent out for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. It's that picture of chasing my will, chasing what I want, apart from our, our Lord. After he had spent everything there, there, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He's thinking about that picture. We lived proud for a while, thinking, yeah, I can make life work. And, but at some point in every one of our lives, the famine comes. And we realize, I got no more. All this stuff I was hoping in, all this stuff that I was looking to for, as my God, it was supplying my love, it was supplying my stuff, it was supplying my respect, it was supplying all that. It's gone. I got nothing. And so what do we do? He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, so this is the sweet sanity, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he went up and went to his father. And, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And he gives him more grace. Here comes that waterfall. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate.
as we enter this time of confession, I'm going to sing um, just this song of confession, and I would encourage you maybe not even to sing along, but just to just to pray. Remembering what it says in 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But we also spend this time in confession, remembering the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I'm going to sing this song of confession. We would encourage you to meet with the Lord and pray.
For hearts that are cold, for seizing control, for scorning our very Maker. In thought, word, and deed, we failed you, our King. How deeply we need a Savior. Lord, have mercy. Father, we thank you that as we confess our sin, you are faithful and you are just. You forgive us our sin. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, how deeply we need that cleansing. Lord, we know that this forgiveness came at a cost. That cost was the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, we thank you that as Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, you made forgiveness possible. You made peace with God possible for us who are undeserving sinners. So, Lord, now as we know we are forgiven, we ask that we might go equipped by your word, empowered by your spirit, to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. Ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.